Last night we began the story of erotic love that I, with the help of John Paul II's Theology of the Body, am arguing is at the heart of God's story from eternity past. Our triune God has forever existed in an eternal exchange of love. And that love is revealed and experienced in the exchange of erotic love through the one flesh union of male and female image bearers. Tonight, we come to the tragedy of that story. We know from our novels and films that every love story we tell, uh, from the cheesy rom-coms to classics like Romeo and Juliet, every one of them contains a tragedy that threatens love. And the reason why we tell our stories this way is because we instinctively know that this is the story we inhabit. We began last night with the revelation of Eros in Genesis 1 and 2. Now we must turn our attention to Genesis 3 and explore what I'm calling the redirection of Eros. And the reason why I use the word redirection is because that's what the fall has done to the erotic. We haven't repudiated Eros. It remains alive within us as the most compelling aspect of the human story. What's changed all comes down to the direction of erotic love. Genesis 2 ends with this beautiful Eros declaration. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then immediately Genesis 3 happens. The enemy of God tempts God's image away from their destiny. They succumb to the temptation and take of that which is forbidden. If you are familiar with Christianity, then you know that is the beginning of what we call the fall. And it's right to interpret the fall the way we normally do, in the broadest sense as the universal sinful nature leading to sins of all different kinds. That's true. But theology of the body focuses on the specified consequences that immediately manifest themselves in the story. He created them male and female, and they were naked and without shame, they take of that which is forbidden. And then verse 7 of Genesis 3 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The consequence of the fall is manifested in their nakedness, specifically their genitals. The eyes of both were opened. It is not that they were blind before is that they now see something that they've never seen. And they knew that they were naked. It's not that they, were na they weren't naked before, but now they see their nakedness differently. What has changed? The clue is in that next phrase. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. The genitals, that if you were here last night or listened online, were celebrated they now need protection. There is something about this newfound perspective that specifically threatens the sexual differences between male and female. 
Remember last night, we argued that these sexual differences are at the center of a theology of the body. Well, those same sexual differences are now vulnerably exposed to something dangerous. And they instinctively know that they must be covered up. They must be protected from the other. What is this newfound threat that has entered in? John Paul argues that love has been replaced by lust. Last night I said that the first seminal passage of theology of the body were the words of Jesus, but from the beginning it was not so. The second seminal word from Jesus in theology of the body is when he, um, is when he says on the Sermon on the Mount, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery. We are accustomed to think of adultery in the conventional meaning, breaking marriage vows, Uh, for sex with another, and certainly that is a form of adultery. But Jesus is getting at the true meaning of adultery here and the reason why it applies to every single person in this room. Adultery literally means to alter, to change, distort, corrupt, adulterate something from its original design and purpose. And according to Jesus, lust is the instrument of adulteration. Anyone who looks at another to lust after them has committed adultery. Adultery of what? Eros. Lust changes eros into something it was never intended to be. That's the look Adam and Eve see for the first time after the fall. No longer do they look upon each other's nakedness in order to love but in order to lust. And there's a huge difference between those two. And the difference all comes down to the direction of Eros. Again, Eros is still present in fallen image bearers, but Eros is now redirected. And the redirection is away from the other and toward the self. Where once Eros was selfless, it is now selfish. Where once Eros was a window, it is now a mirror. No longer a window through which we are given a vision into the love of the divine like we spoke of last night, but now a mirror giving us a vision of our love of self. And in this way, John Paul argues, lust turns Eros from an icon to an idol. The word icon simply means image. When the scriptures say we are made in the image of God, it's saying we are icons of God. But what happens when the image turns inward on itself? When the image is no longer concerned with what it is created to image, but instead is concerned only with self, well, the icon becomes an idol of self-worship. And so now Eros, created as the most powerful icon of God, becomes the most powerful idol of self. Again, erotic love was originally designed after the eternal exchange of love within the Trinity. That exchange is a selfless exchange, not a selfish exchange. Each person of the Trinity forever gives love. But because each is giving love, each is likewise receiving love. Well, there's a huge difference between receiving and taking. In the former, you, you give a gift which you have already given. You receive a gift which you have already given. In lust, we are taking. 
you are taking that which you are unwilling to give. And this is the essence of lust. Lust never gives. It only takes. So the essence of fallen sexuality is that love's exchange has been replaced by lust's exploitation. And when that happens, rules no longer apply except the rule of self. When eros was defined by the Trinity's giving and receiving a love, then of love, then erotic love had to follow the will of God to be accomplished. But erotic lust redirects eros towards self, and therefore erotic lust must follow my will in order to be accomplished. Simply put, God sets the rules of love, I set the rules of lust. Therefore, now there are no rules except the rule that my lust must be satisfied. And those lustful desires don't have to just be about sexual pleasure. Often it is not. After the fall, God said, lust is going to create a power struggle between the male and female genders, where once they selflessly gave themselves to each other in love, now a power struggle has been introduced. And this is, by and large, true. Um, He says to Eve, your desire will be for him. That's not a good desire, that's a lustful desire. But he will rule over you. That's not a good rule, that's a lustful rule. And so there are certainly exceptions to this rule, but historically speaking, that's how lust plays out between the genders. By and large, men tend to use power to gain sex. Women tend to use sex to gain power. Men tend to manipulate to gain sex. Women tend to use sex to manipulate. Men tend to give affection to gain sex. Women tend to give sex to gain affection. Even within the gay community, I have, I have been told by gay friends and observed in, in gay writings that this is, there is a similar power play within their community as well. But the point I'm trying to make here is that both are approaching sex with lustful intentions. Though the taking might look differently, both are seeking to take rather than give. Now, once love's giving has been replaced by lust's taking as the central human impulse, Pandora's box is opened and the power of Eros, designed to be creation's glory, is unleashed upon creation as the source of its greatest ruin. Nothing in all of creation is more powerful than erotic love. That was true before the fall, and that is true after the fall. The fall has innumerable devastating effects, but the reason why the, this aspect of the human existence is singled out in particular in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation narrative is because it is the most po- powerful part of human existence. And the reason why it is singled out in the narrative fall of Genesis 3 is because it is the most powerful part of fallen existence. Throughout all of history, nothing has proven more destructive than sinners compelled by lust's exploitation. That's true of history, but especially true of our time. Historians hate the word unprecedented because nearly every time it's used, it's untrue. How many times 
Have you heard over the past couple years that we are living in unprecedented times during this pandemic? Pandemics are not unprecedented. They are actually quite normative to history. And this is certainly true when it comes to the history of lust, of sexual, fallen sexual lust. Every form of fallen sexuality that we see has been around since the fall. That being said, what I want to do with the majority of our time is explore the two ways that we are living in unprecedented times of lust. Unprecedented times of fallen eros. Again, I don't use the word unprecedented lightly, but it does apply to where we find ourselves in two ways. Technology and identity. What has technology and identity done to fallen eros? John Paul's Theology of the Body has given us a framework for this conference, but to understand our unprecedented moment, I'm going to turn to some other uh, scholars and thinkers. Let's start with technology. There's a French philosopher named Jacques Ellul, fun name to say, Jacques Ellul. He is the go-to critic on uh, technological advancement. And his critique of technology is its singular ambition of efficiency, which is a dangerous thing in the hands of fallen sinners. What happens through technology is the fallen condition has become far more efficient in its destruction. For example, when all we had were swords and spears, there's only so much destruction that um, our fallen hatred can cause, right? But now with the technology advancements of nuclear weaponry, humanity could destroy itself tomorrow if we so choose. You get the point. Okay, let's consider fallen eros in our technological age. There's nothing new about lust's exploitation but what technology has done has magnified exploitation in unprecedented ways. Here we come to the role of the internet and the redirection of Eros. The internet has made lust so efficient that nearly every historical boundary of lust has been eliminated. Now before I explore this, let me say that I know this one will be very personal for many of you here and many watching online, perhaps on screens that were displaying pornography not long ago. Pornography addiction runs on shame. We have to have this discussion. It's an important discussion in our time. But my concern is that in so doing, your shame will only deepen and send you right back into porn's shameful cycle. So let me preface, preface everything I'm about to say with a dignifying word to you who struggle with pornography. Hear me say this clearly, brothers and sisters. Yes, sisters. Uh, sis, our sisters are the, you are not alone in your pornography usage. Women are the fastest growing demographic, and yet every single one of them thinks they're the only one doing it. A lie that only compounds the shame. So hear me, brothers and sisters. Porn is sickening. You are not sickening to God. Porn is debasing. You are not debased. Porn is animalistic. You are not an animal. In fact, porn is ensnaring you by preying upon something incredibly beautiful and noble within you, your sexuality that we discussed last night. 
behind even the most twisted expressions of fallen Eros is the glorious vision of Eros I laid out for us last evening. And we're going to talk more about seeing it that way in your sanctification tomorrow. But most of all, you are not beyond God's forgiveness, cleansing, healing, and redemption. So hold that to mind as I discuss this. What is pornography? When discussing the difference between um, pornography and art, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously said, I know it when I see it. And indeed, this is true. You can instinctively tell the difference. But what is it that you are intuiting? The difference you sense all comes down to the intent of the creator. The artist and pornographer are both displaying the human body, but with opposite intentions. The artist showcases the human body as a glory to behold. The pornographer exploits the human body as a commodity to consume. Art echoes Eden's eros. Porn echoes fallen eros. And this is why we masturbate to pornography, not art. I said the fall redirects eros away from the icon of selfless love and inward toward the idol of selfish lust. Well, masturbation, quite literally, is sex with your idol. I understand the temptation to normalize masturbation because it is so common and shame-producing. And so our well-intended, well-intended solution is to say it's just natural part of life. Well, that depends upon your definition of natural. Yes, it is natural to fall in eros and its lustful thirsts. But if we define natural by what I said last night, then masturbation becomes the antithesis of erotic love. Parents, there is another way to talk masturbation besides the it's just natural and everyone does it narrative of the world or it's dirty and shameful narrative of purity culture. Teach your children the glory of their genitals as the instruments of erotic love, created not for selfish indulgence, but as a gift to selflessly give to their spouse in a one flesh union that tells the story of an eternal exchange of triune love. I mean, don't tell it like that. that <laughs> tell them something like that. All right, breathe. We're done talking masturbation. Back to pornography. Nothing new about pornography. It's been around forever, even before Hugh Hefner made, took it mainstream. So I'm not calling pornography unprecedented. What's unprecedented is the technological proliferation of pornography. The technology of the internet has made lust so efficient that nearly every historical boundary has been overcome. Communal boundaries have been overcome. You alone with your screen in a locked room. Embarrassment boundaries have been overcome. Private browsing and complete anonymity. Content boundaries have been overcome. It is an inexhaustible supply. Accessibility boundaries have been overcome. It's available to you in your pocket as we speak. 
preference boundaries have been overcome. There is no fantasy you seek that you cannot find. In some ways, even physical boundaries are being overcome with the quickly evolving technology of virtual reality. But if you still want the physical, which less and less do as Jacques Ellul predicted, this is his prediction is that we will renounce the physical for the technological. But if you still want to do the real thing, technology has an answer for that too. You go on to Craigslist or something like that or just download an app and locate someone willing to meet up for mutual exploitation that same day. The fall redirected Eros from selfless love to selfish lust and the internet has removed all limitations of that fallen redirection. There is no limit to exploitation anymore. Now what are the consequences? Too many to speak of here. I could do an entire conference just on this topic. Don't get any ideas planning team. I'm not, give me, give me a few years off. But for the purposes of our conference and, and the topic here, discussing this glorious thing called the theology of the body, the ubiquity of pornography has led us to, to a um, nearly universal pornographic view of the body where God's glorious plan for the body I spoke of last night has nearly been forgotten by humanity. Again, the difference between art and pornography comes down to the intent of the creator. Well, God is an artist, not a pornographer. But it's nearly impossible for us to view his divine artistry as anything but porn. The body has become a commodity to lust. We don't know how to look at each other without exploiting each other. Again, this has always been true, but never like it is for us in our porn-saturated society. What a crafty scheme of our adversary who wants nobody to know God's love to vandalize the central revelation of God's love by using technological progress to give God's image a pornographic definition, turning God into an exploitive pornographer rather than a loving artist. How tragic is that? But this is where we find ourselves. Now, let's turn to the next unprecedented development of our time, one that I know a lot of you want to hear me speak on. Not just technology, but identity. If you will indulge me, let me as concisely as I can explain the origins and significance of the LGBTQ plus identity movement. Now, just like I preface my thoughts on pornography, let me preface these thoughts as well to my friends um, attracted to the same sex, attracted to both sexes, or my friends with gender confusion or an all-out transgender identity. If your story is represented in the LGBTQ plus acronym, whether unwanted or fully embraced, a word to you. I'd love for you to listen to my sermon on Sunday where Jesus chastises self-righteous sexuality because chances are you've been harmed in that very way. It is absolutely true. I am not denying it that your sexuality has been treated with what can only be described as scorn or disgust by Christians. It's true. We have fixated on you with the spirit of condemnation while ignoring what is condemnable in us. 
we are without excuse. I cannot speak on behalf of every church, but I can speak on behalf of this church. I am so sorry for how Christians have treated you. And all I know to do is point you to a Savior who will not treat you like his followers have. And I just wanted, to, I just wanted you to hear that before I discuss the development of a story that I know is personal for you. How do we make sense of this cultural moment? In some ways, it makes no sense. Barack Obama, the hero of progress, in his less than 15 years ago, campaigned on a platform of one man and one woman in marriage. Barack Obama. And 15 years later, that's a culturally indefensible position. So in some ways, it makes no sense how rapidly our world has changed on this issue. But understood rightly, this moment is merely the inevitable outcome of historical developments a long time in the making. This story is told in Carl Truman's massively important book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I do have my critiques of Truman's work, but what he has produced is very, very significant scholarship for our time. Truman set out to um, research a simple question around a simple statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Truman wanted to understand how that statement could go from incoherent and self-evidently false to coherent and self-evidently true in the span of one generation. So much so that to deny it is now beyond the pale. And what Truman, Truman's research shows is that you can't make sense of it if you focus on the sexuality and gender part of it. You have to understand something every single one of us shares, no matter our sexuality and gender, the preeminence of the self. That is to say, when considering gay identity or gender identity, it's not the word gay or gender we need to focus on, but the notion of identity itself. Let me do my best to help us understand, which admittedly is going to be a challenge. I read, I read the original version of what I'm about to say to you to Abby, and she glossed over and said, Robert, I'm sure this makes sense to you. It will not make sense to them. Super encouraging word from the wife. But like a good husband, I took her feedback and went back to the drawing board, and I reworked this as best I can, and at her suggestion, I even added something I never do, PowerPoint. I am the most un-PowerPoint speaker ever. I don't like you looking at that thing while I'm talking. <laughs> but I'm gonna give it to you here as an aid, okay? The reason I'm saying all this is because it's very, very important to me, especially if you call TCPC home. It is very important to me that you fully understand the moment that we are in so that we um, can actually understand it, engage it thoughtfully, uh, have empathy for it, and all those different things. So we are almost done, but what I want you to do is give me concentrated attention where I do my best to take honestly, years of research and distill it down to 10 or 15 minutes. 
What had to happen? What had to happen for I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body to make sense is that the word feel in that sentence had to usurp the word body in that sentence. 50 years ago, if you go to a doctor and say, doctor, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, which by the way is very real. Like, I, I need to say that. If you think that all this stuff is silly and crazy, then I, I've met with many friends who deeply struggle with uh, dysphoria over their gender who do feel this way. But 50 years ago, if you would go to a doctor and say, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would recognize that as an as a issue, but the issue would have been with your feelings, not your body. Thus, the answer is to work on the feelings to make them align with the body. Now, if you say that sentence to a doctor, it's still an issue, but the issue is now with your body. Thus, the solution is to align the body to match the feelings. And what this tells us is that our metaphysical feelings now have greater authority than physical realities. In fact, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body has become an obsolete statement. Now it's, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. I feel has been replaced with I am. Because what I feel is now who I am. And all of us, Every single person in this room, not just our LGBTQ plus friends, all of us now view ourselves this way. How did we get there? Truman argues it begins way before the sexual revolution with the much more significant revolution of the self. And the first key development that had to take place was the internalizing of the self. Historically, the answer to the question, who are you, was answered externally. I am the son of David. I am the member of this tribe. I am a farmer. I am a carpenter. And of course, the most common historical answer, I am what my religion says I am. We defined ourselves by external identity markers. But in the 18th century, the answer, who are you, started to turn inward. Truman specifically focuses on the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which he argues successfully moved our identity inward. Rousseau has this famous line, man is born free and is everywhere in chains. Here's the idea behind that. Your truest self is free, autonomous, self-determining, individual, but that individualism has been chained by external realities. So he, he reframes these external factors that used to define our identity as chains, as a threat to our identity. So family, societal norms, and certainly religion are a threat to who you truly are, which is a free, autonomous individual who gets to determine who you are. So with Rousseau, the answer to the question, who am I, is no longer a dialogue with external realities, but an internal monologue of the self. And in this way, Rousseau's philosophy served as a bridge of sorts between the Enlightenment and Romanticism. Enlightenment was the age of reason, right? Romanticism was the age of feelings. If you want to conceptualize the Differences. Enlightenment is the foundation of our math and sciences. 
Romanticism is the foundation of our arts and humanities studies. Now, Romanticism was an important correction to the Enlightenment. I celebrate the Romantics. Art, poetry, music, these things that speak to our emotions more so than our cognition saw a resurgence. And philosophers of Romanticism demonstrated that we are actually compelled far more by our desires than we are by our cognition, by our minds. People don't change by well-reasoned argumentation. They are changed when their desires are captured. Now take Rousseau's philosophy of autonomous individualism. My identity is no longer defined externally, but by an internal monologue, and then add to it the preeminence of emotions by romanticism, and what we now have is an internal emotional identity. That, is this all up? Yeah, see, this is working. Okay. Cool. Might use more. <laughs> what we now have is an internal emotional identity. That internal monologue is not a dialogue with your brain, but with your emotions. Who am I? My feelings. What philosopher Charles Taylor calls the ethics of authenticity. The notion of authenticity has, been param has become par paramount, hasn't it? When someone, when someone comes out as transgender, they say, I was living a lie, meaning I wasn't being authentic with who I am. I wasn't being my true self. The spirit of our age is find yourself, be yourself. This, this, um, this is all an expression of the ethics of authenticity. Now, there are a couple more steps before we get to a sexual identity. But before I get to that, here's what I want to do here at this point in the story. I want to pause to show every one of us here how this is us. This is everyone in this room. Consider the way we conceptualize a vocation, your work. No longer do we ask, is this an important work that needs to be accomplished and will allow me to provide for my dependents? Now we ask what? Am I fulfilled in my calling? Consider... What we do with marriage. No longer do we view marriage by the external vows we take, but by what? Am I fulfilled in my marriage? How many divorces happen simply because someone is no longer happy in marriage? Consider our therapeutic culture. I'm a fan of therapy. My wife's a therapy therapist, and she's a good one. But she's a good one because she doesn't allow her clients to remain in an endless cycle of introspection, trying to find an elusive inner contentment. But that, that, that is the essence of modern therapeutic theory. You've got to find yourself. You've got to come to peace with yourself. Consider, Christians, your relationship with Jesus. No longer is your assurance of salvation defined by the external work of Jesus on the cross. Your assurance is based on an internal dialogue that you're having with whether you feel it. The Christian journey is a maddening, introspective journey trying to feel saved feel loved by God, to feel what the external Bible and historical creeds are already telling you are true. You can't believe they're true until you feel that they are true. And the reason why I'm noting that before we get to the sexualizing of identity is only to say you share far more in common with our LGBTQ plus friends than you realize. The issue is not a gay identity. It's the issue of identity itself. And you, just like them, define your identity by your internal dialogue with your feelings. 
All right, let's move on. If romanticism of 18th and 19th century defined us by our feelings, then I ask you, what is, more, what is the most powerful feeling that you experience? Well, we talked about it last night. John Paul is right. There is nothing more powerful within us than erotic love. And this was the observation of a man you've heard of, Sigmund Freud. Freud gives us an internal, emotional, sexual identity. What he did was take romantic philosophy into the 21st century by, by giving it a scientific foundation. He was a neurologist by training, but his research led to the new scientific discipline of psychoanalysis. And to him, it all came down to erotic desires. Many of you know this about Freud. At the end of the day, it's not just that we are defined by emotions and desires like the romantics say. We are defined specifically by sexual desires. Let me quote directly from Freud, and you will hear the beginning of where we now find ourselves. Quote, man's discovery that sexual love affords him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provides him with the prototype of all happiness must suggest to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital eroticism the central point of his life. There you have it. That man should seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital eroticism the central point of his life. We are in a Freudian society. But one more thing had to happen before his philosophy went mainstream. Historical norms had to be cast off. And just after Freud, we're getting now to some of you in the room. Just after Freud's death comes the swinging 60s and 70s that launched a sexual revolution. But notice how that revolution was spoken of. Liberation. Liberation from millennium, literally millennium-old sexual boundaries. Our society is now sexually liberated. But what has been liberated? Not just your sexual expressions and enjoyment. What's been liberated is you. You are now free to be you because who are you? Your sexual identity. And so now we have an internal, emotional, sexual, liberated identity of the 21st century. Now there's more of the story that I don't have time to get into and you're saying thank you. But one thing I can't resist here because this is important for you to understand your, your friends and, and family and our culture. One thing that is important is philosopher Charles Taylor's work on secularization. Secularization sought to rid the world of religion, but the problem with the secular project is that we cannot rid the world of religion because we cannot help but be religious. So in the absence of traditional religious communities and institutions and practices, the vacuum of our religious instinct is filled with non-traditional forms of religious communities and practices. And this is what we have done to the sexual identity. It's not just an identity. It's a religion with strict orthodoxy. That self-censorship that you feel on this topic is because you know 
Disagreement is now cultural blasphemy, which will be met with cultural discipline, perhaps even cultural excommunication. So here's where you find yourself, Christian. And if you have family or friends who identify as LGBTQ+, I hope this will help you understand where they are coming from and give you empathy for why this part of them is so important to them. Of course, they're not articulating everything that I just went through, but this is the spirit of what they are and why it's so important to them. The reason is, is that they don't view this as a part of them. They view this as them. And chances are they do so with the same religious fervor as your religious devotion to Jesus. And because of this, what I said in my sermon this past Sunday is true. On this singular issue, tolerance, respect, kindness, and love are not enough. You can't merely agree to disagree with civility. You must affirm. The tension we all face in this unprecedented hour of identity is the issue of affirmation. We must be affirming of any and all expressions and lifestyles. Why? Because my sexuality is now me. And therefore, to not affirm my sexuality is to not affirm me as a very person. We can disagree, fiercely disagree in any area and still be friends, the best of friends. But you can't disagree with me in this one area because to do so is to disagree with my core identity. You're not disapproving of my opinion or even my actions. You're disapproving of my very existence. And so what has happened to the story of fallen Eros is that we now define ourselves by fallen eros. That is unprecedented. Please listen to me. You aren't going to win the argument. So stop trying. For you are arguing against three centuries of cultural development. Logic and reason have no sway in this moment that we find ourselves. This holds so much weight in our culture's DNA that bodies and pronouns are now being altered to accommodate for its presence. There is one and only one way to engage this cultural moment. Love. But I don't just mean love like you're thinking. I'm telling you, you're going to have to tell a better story of love. Not just tell it, but you're going to have to live it. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow. A story that transcends this moment and every cultural moment by stretching forth into eternity past. A story that recognizes what Freud saw that, yes, indeed, there is no desire stronger than erotic desire. And yet a story that brings enlightenment, reasoning, and romanticism, emotion together as friends who both have something to say to the erotic. Theology of the body is that story. That's why I said at the beginning, I'm not here to argue. I'm here to tell a story. And tomorrow that story gets better than we could ever imagine. We're going to see that though we have made a mess of this erotic story, God uses Eros itself to save the story. Even entering our fallen love story as the bridegroom hero to rescue his bride.
He's going to slay the dragon and get his lady. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be a community that does this moment well, with humility, who is first to repent, is first to own our own sexual brokenness, who is first to welcome into our homes those who disagree with us in order to show them a better story. Oh God, I pray for those in this room or listening online for whom this talk was particularly personal to their story, whether through pornography addiction or unique struggles with their own sexuality. Lord, I beg of you that they would hear my words with the grace they are intended and that you would meet them, that you would show them your love and that they would see a better story. Lord, we are eager to get here tomorrow to hear you rescue the mess that we have made. But tonight we live humble, broken, and contrite, all of us in our own unique ways crying out to you, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you. Thank you that you have had mercy on your bride. In Jesus' name, amen.